Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Authentic Messengers. My name is Catherine Van Wetter and I will be your host today. Every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, I have been interviewing different authors from our new book, Life Sparks, and since then have gone on to introduce and interview different authors from a wide array of specialties, be it spirituality, science, or political. So if you know of anyone who may be interested in getting interviewed on Authentic Messengers, please contact us at AuthenticMessengers.com. Please also visit us at Facebook, AuthenticMessengers.com, and leave your comments, your thumbs up, or if you know of any guests who you would like to have on the show. So thank you for joining me, and today I have the honor of introducing and also interviewing Joe Arnold, who has developed his spirituality through his music and writing. He is joining me today in dialogue to discuss his own journey from his young life through his elder years. Joe Arnold comes from a musical and spiritual background where the two combine to offer what he believes may truly be one of the universal truths which brings emotional and spiritual healing to individuals. Gentle melodies of the flute can inspire deep contemplative feelings for those who are willing to listen. And you may hear in the background some of the beautiful sounds of Joe Arnold. He has been playing the Native American flute for the last 20 years or so, and the flute itself for the last 50. So welcome, Joe. Thank you, Catherine. It's so great to be here. It's such a wonderful thing to talk about. I hear you in enthusiasm. I was really, <laughs> I was looking forward to having you on. So I neglected to say that you're also an author, and your new book is called The Song, and you're a musician. So I would love to know how it is that you combine your music and your book and what your book is about. You want to know what my book is about? Well, let's see. Uh, well, I began writing this book as a spiritual guidebook of sorts. Well, then I got to thinking, hmm. I realize that most readers may not want to have yet another spiritual story. So I took a turn toward a mystery thing. Since I'm a seasoned Native American food player, I wanted to bring a musical thing. And as the story emerged, I brought in a ritual needed to enter the spiritual world by my two main characters, Detective Riley and Serena Conti, who naturally found its and they naturally found its way into the my music naturally found its way into the story. So I added the title of the song once that theme emerged. How is it that your Flute music combines itself with the name of your book, The Song. Well, having music in my, I guess my bones, would indicate that I needed to bring that title in somehow. And so as the book started to emerge, I realized that I needed to find a way to put the music in as ritual. And um, the idea of using music as a way of going from the human reality into the spiritual realm needed a threshold, a transition, if you will. 
And then I created this song and this music to actually use as a ritual for our two heroes to move from the human reality into the spiritual realm. And that's sort of a gateway, if you will, of moving between these two realms. And they needed to actually bring that music up. Does that make sense? Bring that music up into the upper world? Is that what you're... From the spirit world to the human world. And then from the human world to the spirit world. Yeah. How is it that music is so important in this realm? How is music so important in this realm? Um, Mm -hmm. I believe that, and this is my belief, that source is about vibration. Source, vibration, source. If you want to call source God or whatever you want to call it, it actually comes from a place of sound. And so if, if that's true, sound of source needs to emanate from source out into either the spiritual realm or the human realm or some combination thereof. And then that merges the two worlds together. And without sound or vibration, we have this disconnect. And so I think that Mm. source and sound and vibration pulls us together, all of us together, not only just here in this human plane, but in the entire universe. And if the big bang theory, the word bang is kind of a funny word, that that initiates the word in me for sound, bam. So that is a vibration. And so if we're all connected in some way throughout the universe, why wouldn't we be connected through sound, vibration, music? And there's so much healing that can happen with sound. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, when I do the work that I do with my music, it's always amazing to me when I play the Native American flute music, it has its own sort of ritual on its own with the beautiful Lakota or Sioux tribe. And I love the idea that the sound resonates through the human body. And when that sound resonates through the human body, there's a vibration that happens. And I've witnessed this over and over and over again, that people can heal with that vibration. And so in the introduction, we talked a little bit, it was the introduction was a little bit about how you developed your spirituality through your music and writing. And so you've explained the power of music and the healing components of it. How was it that your spirituality was able to come through your music and writing? Was it just what you said? And if it is, can you go into more detail about that? Um, When it comes to writing, when it comes to music, these are creative endeavors that either you sit at your computer, I sit at my computer, and I just clack away and hope something's going to happen. And I can spend two hours a day just writing and spewing out a bunch of stuff. Or I can spend two hours a day just playing a bunch of music. But without intention, it's all disjointed. But with intention comes this way of channeling music, channeling words into stories, and channeling is an interesting topic. What do you think? 
Well, there's a lot of speculation about what channeling is and whether channeling comes from inside of us or outside of us. And so I'm really sensing that it's so rich of what we're talking about because we can go deeper into talking about your book. We can go deeper into talking about your music, your flutes. Um, So it's going to be fun to see how this conversation, how this dialogue is going to go. Since you brought up channeling, I know that Many folks who who do tap into the spiritual realm, as you said, your book combines a real-life mystery with also the upper world. So how is it that you channeled? Did you, were you getting information from your own guides and guardians, or did you actually tap into a bit of a vortex? <laughs> That's a great question. Channeling is a funny question. You know, people ch- talk about channeling, and I don't know if everybody knows what channeling is. I certainly don't. All I know is that as I sat down and decided that this story was, had to emerge, that's my human part. That's my connect to my mind. I'm going to write this book. And my editor would tell you that he's, he's a little befuddled by how I can do what I do as he's telling me all these things and how to make it work and all this and I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he says, how do you actually hold all of that? I said, I don't. And then, of course, he just sort of throws his hands up in the air and says, I'm trying to edit this book for you, and you're telling me that there's no rhyme or reason? I said, no, this is what channeling is. When I sit down and I sit at my computer and I got my hands on the keyboard, I don't have a particular plan. And all of a sudden, all this information comes through me. And I just start, I just put all this information down into some sort of electronic format because it's what I do now. And then he takes it and says, this is amazing. And then he does his magic and gets the syntaxes right. And I say, all I'm doing is bringing a story in from a different realm, that different dimension, that different place. And it comes through me and it funnels down into my fingers. And I put this story down on, on a, dare I say, a piece of paper. It's not really a piece of paper, as you know. It's a way of actually putting a story into words that is actually going to help humanity. Now, Hmm. I have to admit that at some point I said, well, again, I don't want to tell another spiritual story. We're just, you know, so much of that. So I'm going to put it into a format where it's entertaining to read. And I chose a story. I chose a story that actually already happened. Well, how did I, I recognize you told you did choose a story, but how did you come up with the title of the song for your book? If it's about a mystery, because if I, if I looked at the title and saw a song, I may not, it would be very intriguing, but I would think it would be about music. So if you could explain that, I would love it. Well, that's why on my dust cover of my book, I write down a mysterious tale of intrigue from a higher source. The song, yes, it might, you might want to say, oh, the song. I'm going to read this book about song. It's not a book about song. The song is a part of the book. But that's, that name, that title, the song, is really more about how we as our human selves tell our stories through our songs 
and we can get into more of that when I talk about my Native American food history because the real songs are the stories that are told. Mm. And I love the idea that the Lakota grandmothers would tell the stories to the young children and they would listen and she'd sing the stories in a song. And so stories, their vibration, their our mythology, as Joseph Campbell would say, they actually bring forth this idealism about how we came to be in existence through storytelling that was told by these ancient grandmothers as songs. Now, if you look at my book, you're not going to get any of that from my title. Eh, but I had to make the title something. And that's what came to mm. me. Well, it's intriguing, and I know that I've had the pleasure of reading some of your book, and it's very intriguing. And looking forward to, I'd love to see a movie <laughs> about that. <laughs> sometimes to be able to actually see it on the screen would be really cool. Perhaps in the future, who knows? Well, perhaps. And I've had people who have read my book who said, this is written like a screenplay. I said, I didn't really intend that to happen. But I have sort of direction as I write the story. And there's a lot of stories within this story. If you read the book, you might discover, one might discover, that there are all kinds of stories that have already been told. And they're interwoven into this book. And I chose the Mayan culture simply because I just really love who they are and what they mean for me. And um, it made it kind of fun and exciting to write about the Mayan spirituality in my own take. It's not necessarily a true account. However, there's a lot of facts in my book that I've done a lot of research on that um, are true. And I love pulling in all of these cultures and weaving them together. There's information about the Egyptian world. There's information about the Mayan world, about the Sumerian world, even about the Inca world, and these various travelers who have gone around the world and pulled all this information together, and I just wove it into a mystery story. Are those some of the universal truths that you talk about with bringing in so many, in many ways, universal truths from different aspects of spirituality? Well, maybe. Um, I won't. When I say universal truth, I have a friend who lives on Whidbey Island, and he has this idea that the universal truth is nature. All right, I might go there and say possibly, but I also believe that everybody has their own truth. This is just the universal truth is the truth of self-realization and the way that we actually become who we need to be regardless of our background. The universal truth, if you will, is about our own experiences. And I've gone deep into the soul work of myself to discover my own universal truth. So maybe that's an answer. Maybe it's vagrity. I don't know if it's really something that answers any question. But as we all search for our own truth, somewhere in there is this universal truth that we all attach to. I believe it's to vibration and sound. Mm. And is that part of how your channeling came into you, was tapping into your own universal truth 
or truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I actually started to resonate and vibrate into that place. I mean, even now, as I sit here talking with you and I put my hands out, they vibrate. And I vibrate. And, mm-hmm. and people have told me that, wow, you just, they say you're shaking. It's, it's more of a vibration. I just vibrate at a certain level. That is my truth resonating out through my own source of myself. Hmm. Did this come to you? Has this been something, a gift that you've known about for a long time, or did you have some sort of wake up? Because I've, I've interviewed many people and I've talked to many folks who have wanted awakening so that they recognize the essence of who they are, the vibration of who they are, the, the, um, as you were saying, the, the energy that your hands are emitting and the channeling that happens. Do you think that, that we're all capable of that or is there some sort of spiritual experience that happens that awakens somebody into that awareness? Wow, what a, what a great batch of questions. I, I had my first awakening when I was 15. Now, I'm 58 years old. I was born in 1958. There's all these great numbers, things. I'm a, num- a number guy. Um, so at the age of 15, I had a young man come up to me, and he was you – know, I grew up in Southern California where it's all very homogenous. <laughs> and this young black – African-American boy came up to me and then we were both 15 and he was this incredible guy and he was gay, but he couldn't admit that. And his comment to me was keep going on your dream because your dream will show you where you're going to go. I'm paraphrasing because he said something more than that, but that just shook me into this awareness. And as I moved through my life, Oh, those now when you're 58, 15, what is that? 43 years later, I realized that, yes, we have this vibrational path within all of us. Whether we're awake to it or not is our own journey. And at some point, I believe, we all awaken to that. Whether it happens in our midlife, whether it happens at the end of our life, I don't know. But what I do know is it opened up a grand possibility for myself so I could Mm. then follow this beautiful journey of inter-understanding and bring it from this sort of molecular quantum place of myself into the outside of who I am. And so it's like dancing with myself. Wow. You know, it's, it's, thank you for that explanation. It was really beautiful. And I'm thinking of where we are energetically as a country and as, a world that in specifically because of being in the United States of the United States. And I brought this up in to many of the other discussions I've had with folks um, that I've interviewed on this show, the importance of one really learning or being aware of their own song, the importance of recognizing that within us is our song. And it's almost as if we've hit the tipping point where we are being called to come forward with the song of who we are in order to go to a higher level, into a higher vibration, into a higher consciousness. 
and wondered if um, if you wanted to expound at all on what I just what I just said. If you have thoughts on that, um, it's kind of funny you say if I have thoughts on that. Thoughts are interesting things. They generate from the inside of our brain, and then we project them out. And then we tell people how we feel and we you know, show people what we should do and we go out and protest and we go out and this and that and the other thing outside of ourselves. Now, it generates from inside of ourselves, I believe. And I look at what's happening in the world now and we can all talk about, if we want to, how bad everything is. Okay, I'll go along with that. You know, we've got this administration now that is just, destroying the fabric of what we believed America was? Or what if we looked inside of ourselves and said, what's my fabric? And instead of <laughs> saying, you shouldn't do this, what if you say, I should do this? And not, I love, mind you, I love the uh, Women's March. I thought it was beautiful. And now, where is it? What if we're looking inside of ourselves and not giving so much credence on all of what's happening out there and look back into ourselves and say, how am I going to be different? How am I going to be a person who can say, here's where I am? And wouldn't that be more powerful than blaming everybody else or blaming the administration? (laughs) What a concept, because my own judgment is that we have created in some ways a nation of folks that look outside themselves and blame others for their particular situation. And not to bring up any names right now, it's almost like some political folks are demonstrating the same thing and not taking responsibility and being accountable So how does a culture who has been raised on this or have it within their cellular memory, how are they able to move out of that concept that it's not out there, out there, but it's an inside job? Well, that's beautiful. It's an inside job. This is all about an inside job. Yes, 25% of America, maybe more, may believe one thing. 25% of America, maybe more, may believe another thing. And so what are they going to do? They're going to throw eggs at each other for the rest of their lives, blaming the other person for not seeing their point of view. Okay, that may be productive for the individual because they say, wow, I feel better because I've thrown an egg at somebody. But really, really, the fabric of society might be better served if we looked inside of ourselves and healed within ourselves what we think other people need to do. Hmm. Well, what kind of, if somebody started taking responsibility like that, how would their life change? I mean, would they be able to change the reality of what they're walking in and things aren't as bad as they think they are? How why is it important and how does it empower somebody or does it empower someone? Kind of playing the devil's advocate here for you. Well, I have to say this about that. I asked some friends of mine recently. I said, okay, I'm going to ask you this question. Over your entire lifetime, politics, the political landscape, if you will, 
what has impacted you personally and in what way? Personally, you know, politics of Ronald Reagan, politics of Jimmy Carter, and on and on and on it goes. George W. Bush, George W. Bush Jr., um, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. And not a single person has been able to tell me what impacted them personally. I said, I'll share with you what Ronald Reagan's policy and how it impacted me personally. I had a, C, a certificate of a deposit that was earning 12%. <laughs> okay, that impacted me personally because of his particular politics. And then it went the other way. And, you know, I, my interest rates now are, what, 0.5% of my savings? That's impacting me personally, but I can live with that. Um, I have... I, I, lived, I lived in North Carolina for a period of time and worked in Washington, D.C. And I asked the people on the street. Now, Washington, D.C. used to be majority African-American. It is now minority African-American. So things have changed around a little bit. And I've asked my cohorts, my, my laborer fellows on the street, what do you think about Barack Obama's policies? How have they impacted you? And none of them could say that they've impacted them positively. Okay, that's fine. Mm. It's a personal thing. Now, the greater politics of the world have been wonderful. I think Barack Obama has done a wonderful job in engaging the rest of the world in policies that actually are holistic for society at large. However, the individuals couldn't name it. Now, it would be interesting to go back and ask the same people in a, a year or two if that's still going to happen. How has Donald Trump's policies impacted you? They might have a different tune. They might say, oh, not so good. But it's amazing how it's very far and few between who people would say, my personal life has been impacted by the politics of this country vis-a-vis -vis the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder how it is that so many people have been trained into thinking that it's out there, out there. Is it, and you spoke about it earlier, the whole connection to the upper world and connecting into the unseen. How is it, do you think, as a culture, that many folks have forgotten that unseen realm? Well, there's a, a wonderful series of movies you may remember from back in the 90s um, called The Matrix. And mm -hmm. there's this illusion that happens if not, for those listeners who are not familiar with that, that the machine world creates this software of illusion for humans that are plugged in to become batteries to supply the energy for the machines, <laughs> kind of a wild thing. And these people are walking around thinking that this is a reality. And yet, it's an illusional reality, and yet they feel like it's a reality. They feel it because their mind is telling them that the steak tastes good, that the smell is good, that what they see is good. These are all senses that we think are good, but it's an illusion. So when the, the, the spiritual gurus of the world had commentary on that particular series of movies, they spoke about how we're already 20% into that. Now, that was 20 years ago. How far are we into that illusion? Do we think, do we see, do we believe because we're programmed to believe? 
or do we see and believe because it's who we are? What is our reality? How do we generate that reality for ourselves? And then ultimately, how do the collective generate the reality for the collective, the whole world at large? And that's where my book comes in to play back to that is that somebody's sort of twisting the knobs and, and hitting the little thing and lightning and thunder and all kind of smoke, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So did we start this back when the Wizard of Oz came into the movie setting? Were we being duped? Are we being duped? And that's why I wrote this book. It channeled through me that we actually have no control over this reality with somebody pulling the levers and pushing the buttons. And yet, when we believe that we have the power, then everything changes. We don't believe that the other people have the power. We don't believe that the other people have the power. Well, we believe that we have the power. That's when things change. Mm-hmm. So why, why do you think it's especially, especially important now that people begin to recognize the value of the unseen world? Why now in history is this so important? Not to say it wasn't in the past, but it feels like there's a sense of urgency right now for folks either well, to perish or to flourish. Well, the, the, the answer to that at least in my reality, which I create for myself, is that the Mayan calendar didn't end on December 21st in 2012 at 4 o'clock in the morning, which my book talks about Mm -hmm. that. It actually shifted. So we believed something was going to happen because that's what we were told to believe. A whole bunch of people said, ah, the world's coming to an end. Well, it didn't. And I lived on Mm Whidbey Island in uh, 1999 at December 31st, 11.59. Okay. So what were we told was going to happen? Y2K. Everything's going to collapse. And I remember sitting with countless numbers of people talking about what's going to occur and preparing for it. And I didn't necessarily believe that everything was going to perish, but I sat there and thought, hmm, what would it be like if it did? And then I thought, wait a minute. That's creating a reality that isn't going to exist. And sure enough, Mm -hmm. a few days after 2000 came, all the people showed up on my doorstep with their 50-pound bags of grain and said, do you want this? (laughs) I said, sure. I got chickens to feed. And... (laughs) I, it changed my whole way of looking at the world. It said, oh, I understand what it is that I need to do. I don't understand what everybody else needs to do. I just understand what I need to do. And I started developing this really amazing mantra for my own sense of reality is the whole economic world talks about buying gold to as a good investment because gold never goes away. It's some precious metal that makes us all feel really good, kind of like diamonds and that sort of thing. And I started thinking, screw that. I said, don't buy gold, buy goats. Mm-hmm. 
And what I meant by that was the animals, the plants, the environment is going to save us. Not gold, not money, mm-hmm. not investments in real estate. That's a bunch of hooey. It's all kind of nice right now because we're all feeling the great bubble that's going to coming up again. But I still think if you've got that extra bit of uh, resource, go buy some goats. Goats can feed you. They can help you. They can all these things. And that was my sense of reality through Y2K. And then ultimately came to be around the end of the Mayan calendar, not the end, the transition. Because the Mayan calendar, as readers or listeners may know, is still going on. It's just changed and shifted into a different place. I remember so we've got a seeing. <clears throat> I remember seeing a YouTube that was actually put together by either the Hopi or the Mayans, who mentioned pretty much what you said, um, which was not so much with buying a goat, but as far as recognizing it is not indicative of the end of the world. Rather, it's a shift in consciousness. And it, at that point, I was so amazed with how much we were hearing in the media and how much commercialism and blah, blah, and sensationalism was around the end of the world, the end of the world. Yet here was this YouTube that was floating out there that said, it's not the end of the world, it's a shift in consciousness that's happening. Angel time, 333. Um <laughs> I was in Peru in 2008 for three weeks with some friends from here on Ruby Island. And I was amazed by what this Kunandero, who for some reason he just was kind of interested in giving me all this information around plants and such and herbal remedies um, in his sort of broken Spanish and Quechua, which I couldn't understand. Um, it was incredible when he shared to me that the whole premise of South America and North America, you know, North America encompassing the United States was this very powerful nation. He said that the technology of the golden eagle is in North America. The spirituality of the condor is in South America and they can't exist without, without each other. And so that whole idea of how we marry ourselves in our spiritual world and our technological world, they have to move together. And so in, in, in my book, when I wrote about the, the Maya spiritual world, and I pulled it together with the technology world, and I showed my readers that they're banging up against each other until a moment where they all integrate together. So at the end of my book, everything is good, everything is good. If everything's bad, everything's bad, bad, bad. So how do we, as humans, integrate our spiritual selves with our technology selves and not say that one rules the other? They marry together. It just dawned on me that on many of the dollar bills is the goal, is the eagle mm-hmm. the currency within the United States is the eagle yeah and there's the pyramid with the, well I can get into the whole with <laughs> the, the Templar and all mm-hmm. that stuff yeah right. 
that's a whole different story, um, which actually is kind of interesting because in my next book, I pull together what we can do as human beings at the next level. If we survive and we look at what the next opportunity is, we are going to travel the stars and connect with the communities in the universe and become a whole people of the entire universe together. Not separate, not those people way out there, all of us together. It's funny you kind of said if, if we survive your book, that's what you said. Well, so I'm not going to give away the of, end of it. You got to you got to read it to get the end. <laughs> no, of it. I mean you said it, if you survive, if we survive, and I and what you're saying in your book, part of the context was if we survive as humans or as a species. Not it wasn't meant in another way that it sounded. It just I don't know why I construed it the way I did, but anyway, so. Th- you talked a little bit, you've mentioned some of the Mayan mysticism. Why is it that you, that you merge the Mayan mysticism into your book? Is it because of what you just said, or is there more to your reasoning behind that? Well, um, without giving away too much of what's in my book, I would say that to actually recognize where the Mayan culture comes from, if, if I can say that, where the Inca culture comes from, where the Aztec culture comes from. These are all cultures that have amazing capabilities. At least I'll go as far as saying, now we'll go to the Egyptians, the Inca, the Aztec, the Mayan culture. These people have built amazing structures that some of us today, some of these particular structures, cannot be replicated by our technology we have today. We could not erect pyramids that were erect, the way they were erected in Egypt with today's technology. We don't have a, the best machines to do that. So how do they achieve that? And if you've ever been to Peru, which I think you have, is that true? Mm-hmm. It is true, right, in 04. So, yes, yeah, so you have seen firsthand those great walls at Machu Picchu mm-hmm. with these amazing mm-hmm. stones that weigh 12, 15, 20 tons that are 40 feet, well, not 40 feet, about 15 feet above the Earth's surface. How did they get there? And so, oh my God, there's something else, some other force happening, whether it be levitation, which is the opposite of gravity by you. Somebody told me that. Do you know what the opposite of gravity is? I said, oh, you're going to have to tell me. He said, it's levity. Gravity, levity. Mm. So mm. if that means that there was levitation happening, fantastic. Now, and, and I go all the way down into the uh, places in, well, as you have probably been there as well, uh, in Cusco, there's this amazing street, and I cannot remember the name of the street, but on one side of the street is all the Inca building of walls. On the other side of the street is the Spanish. Oh, the Spanish. You guys are so great, and your walls are crumbling. They were built hundreds of years after the Inca wall, which is still standing and has survived the earthquakes of time because there was some technology that allowed them to put these together. 
And so coming all the way back to how did we get to where we are today, there's some ancient culture that was bigger than we are today that knew how to do this. Mm. We can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they're just sitting up there just shaking their heads, <laughs> wondering <laughs> what we're doing down here. Why are you doing <laughs> Come on, guys, get it together. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, and, and I think that having read this really amazing book by Dana and Ginger Lamb, um, the, they're, they're incredible books. Um, the Enchanted Vagabonds and Quest for the Lost City. And they recount, mm-hmm. this is, these are all true stories, their, their journeys through these places and what it meant to see this incredible aspect of our human nature. Now I'm going into mm. uh, Thomas Berry stuff. Human nature. Nature is not separate from us. We are part of nature. And so when we talk right. about the words human nature, we are nature. We are in it. We are with it. We're not on top of it. We're not trying to conquer it. We belong to it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's the, the interconnectedness of all of it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So with your, with your book comes entertainment, and with your book comes a lot of points of inquiry and really looking deep within oneself. So with that being said, what are your future plans to bring this work forward into the world? How are you wanting to do that or envisioning doing that? Well, writing to me is a fun and exciting thing. I've been blessed with the ability to be a good storyteller. And I've known I a number of storytellers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have fun with it. And that's great. And I think if people go, huh, wow, something to ponder, then I've done my job. I don't want to convince anybody mm. of anything. But what I really want to do is work with someone who has the capacity to bring people forward and heal their own sense of who they are within their own family, you know? And so when people come together and say, wow, I can actually embrace this part of my life from my ancestors and bring them forward and then take a look in the face of my own lineage, what will I do with that? And I think that's where we can heal. And I'm so excited about mm-hmm. the aspect or the possibility of working with my music within that realm. And I've been trained in family constellation work, so I understand that work. And I know you have been, and you're, a, a, what I see is a, a fabulous family constellation worker, and I have witnessed what you can do. So how can I actually be a part of that? The question I have. Well, and you and I, no surprise, you and I have talked about, you and I have talked about the possibility of, of merging the visions of the music and the constellation work. And it brings, it brings forth the beauty of masculine feminine coming together in reciprocity with each other, with the equal balance. And so that's a, that's an exciting um, prospect. To, to begin co-creating that, um, that matrix, so to speak. 
Yes, so I see writing a book is kind of fun. You know, channeling the work is interesting. And that's all great, and it makes me feel good. Um, But the work that we just talked about, that's the juice of it. That's where it really happens. You can read my book, and you can come ponder it if you want. But I want to see how to really help people heal those places. And I see that in who you are. And I'm really blessed to be a part of that in whatever capacity I can be. Well, it's been fun exploring that. So it's, it's been fun exploring that. And so with that, I have another question for you, which is we've talked about your native American flute playing and being a, Mm -hmm. a flute player. And you also go by the name of Kusiami. I did pronounce that right. You did. Thank you. <laughs> and you know, you know what so that ha- means? Have, you, have I told you what that means? Well, tell me again and tell the audience, please. Okay. So I, my, my, my heritage, my lineage, not heritage so much, but my lineage is Tadahumara. And some of you out there may know that those are the runners the ones that run 150 miles. They do marathons to warm up. And they live in the Copper Canyon of Mexico, and they were named Tadahumara by the Spanish invasion invaders. And they put them sort of in the res, if you will, of the Copper Canyon, which is a beautiful place. Much. And uh, they run and kick these wooden balls. And as they run and kick these wooden balls, <laughs> running for... Miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. If the ball goes down the canyon wall, which is about 2,000 feet, they have to run down and get it and kick it back up and then go along the trail. Their original name was Raramuri, which means, I know, it's kind of fun, which means the runners. So Raramuri is the original name of the tribe. Tarahumara is the given name from the Spanish. And that means the runners. Okay. And so that's where I come from. Now, the Raramuri language is Toltec in nature. So there's this word, Kusiyami, translated into Spanish, translated then into English, means touching the flutes. And that's where that name came from. Wow. Wow. Did you know that when you first touched the flute and began playing it, or did you learn that as you began being more interested and invested in the music as your medium? (laughs) Well, um, here's how that came to be. I'm traveling down into the Copper Canyon with a friend of mine. And so we spent about a week down in uh, Crayel, which is sort of the heart of the Copper Canyon. And I got to meet the Raramuri, the Tarahumara people. And so I come back out and we travel back up to visit my parents in Prescott, Arizona. And as I'm talking with my mother about the family tree stuff, we're going through all of that process. She's got a little post-it. You know those little yellow things with the little sticky thing on the back? And on that (laughs) post-it, she has the word Tarahumara written on it. I look at that and think, shit, I've just been with them. It's part of my language. And I look at that and I said, Mom, what does this mean? She goes, oh, your grandfather's Tarahumara, some Indian tribe. Mom, do you have any idea what this means? Just, oh, no, not really. 
and I told her the whole story about where I had just been. And she goes, oh, really? Wow. <laughs> and so that's when I discovered, and this was back in 1995? Yeah, I think so. That my heritage is Tarahumara. And that's the year 1995 is when I got my first Native American flute sent to me by a friend from Moab, Utah. And I started playing it then. And wow. So Tarahumara. <laughs> and so I started looking up the language and I started doing some research about language. I said, oh, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this uh, a vocation of myself. I'm going to play these flutes and it's all so wonderful. And what what name in the Tadahumara or Ramamuri language means flutes? And that's when I found Kusiyami. And that's what that means, touching the flutes. Wow, it's beautiful. Everybody? And your, your flute music is so beautiful. And knowing you, you have 30 flutes or so. <laughs> um, yeah. I wondered if with, with each one of the flutes, I mean, that's on the other side of the door. It, it's, overwhelming because we are in the same location and um, anyway so the number of flutes that you have what is the significance of so many I mean I think about guitarists who may have three guitars or something but how is it that you have so many flutes are they all that different Native American and otherwise aren't they just the same well in some respects they are the same they 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 respond the same way. Um, there are different keys, and I actually have every key on the scale, and they're in minor keys, and there are different keys for different reasons, but um, they're wind instruments, and because they are played with air blowing through them, hot air, and I'm not necessarily saying that I'm full of hot air. However, that being said, I guess I am. And it condenses and it goes into this cold instrument. So the, uh, the, the way that the air moves across the instrument, it can actually do what's called vapor locking. So you've got a lot of vapor in there and it stops playing. So when I'm doing concerts, <laughs> I have to really be aware that it's about to happen and sort of end that particular song, if you will, and then pick up another flute and move it along because I know that that one is about done. So I have to keep, <laughs> when doing a two-hour concert, you've got to play a lot, and I have to have a lot of flutes so that I can actually avoid the vapor lock thing, which is kind of embarrassing. When I blow through the instrument, it goes, <laughs> sorry, got to change instruments. So I have to know that. <laughs> That's part of the reason. The other reason is there's different octaves. And I can't play all the different octaves on one instrument, so I have quite a number of them. And I have given them away to people. I did a ritual with somebody who asked me to play for his rite of passage. And he said, will you play this? And I said, sure. And so I played it. And after I was done, I said, well, now you have to have this flute because it was your rite of passage. So that means I have and to then replace And once somebody uh. is given a flute like that, can they play it again? Or is there within the tradition, if one is gifted a flute such as going through initiation, they're not able to play it? Or I oh, thought no. I heard they can that play somewhere. It. Maybe. They can play it again if they want. It's, I mean, we're in a Western culture here. I mean, if I wanted to go back and talk about the Lakota 
story about the the love flute. And Paul Goebel wrote the, writes a beautiful book. He didn't write the book. A Lakota chief wrote, wrote the story, but he did the illustrations. And if you know who Paul Goebel is, he makes these amazing beaded um, images. And uh, the, the, the story is that the Native American man, the, 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 he's, he's kind of the local guy, if you will, and the chief's daughter is so beautiful and he wants to marry her, but of course she's being you know, pursued by all these other sort of warrior guys. And he is so distraught, he goes on a vision quest and he leaves the village. And as he travels over Hill and Dale and that sort of thing, um, the elk man comes and elk turns into man who leaves the native flute beside him and then turns back into elk and leaves. And the, this, this wonderful boy picks up this flute and he starts playing it. And the song travels over the forest, across the river, to the chief's daughter. And she hears this beautiful song. And all the other men who are trying to woo her, she just waves her hand away and says, no, I hear something. And then all of a sudden, this boy, after doing this vision quest, is on the other side of the bank of the river. And he's playing this flute that he's been gifted by Elkman. And he plays this amazing song. And she just falls in love with him. And the song is the bridge for her to fall in love with him. And they, he comes mm. across the river playing the flute, and they come together. And she says, this is the beautiful man that I love. All the rest of you, you're on your own. Good luck. <laughs> she falls in love with him. And they're married, and the chief just adores this young boy who's been gifted this amazing instrument. And they get married, and they live this long, beautiful life together. Now, after they're married, the flute gets put away and never played again. And so that's the lore of the love flute, is when the boy, when the man plays the flute for the woman, she falls in love with him, and he never plays it again for her. And then he passes it on to his son, and on and on and it goes. And that's sort of the legacy of the Native American Lakota tradition, Love flute. Oh, I actually so have that book. I have that book with me somewhere here, and it's a beautiful story to read. And I've read it to so many people, and they just go, oh, "Could that be really true?" <laughs> so with can. that, so with that beautiful story, how do you envision using your skills as a flute player and? As you're speaking, can you can you begin to play softly your flute as I introduce next week's guest? Absolutely. I see my music merging with, <laughs> dare I say, as you know what that means, the work that you do. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
beautiful music. And as I begin to introduce my guests for next week, thank you, Joe. That is so beautiful. Thank you, Catherine. It was really wonderful, wonderful to engage with you. Thank you, and I'm sure that we will have many more conversations. <laughs> and you can dear sure listeners, of. thank you for listening in. I'm so excited. Next week, my guest will be Deborah Koff Chapin. Deborah has been developing touch drawing since it came to her as an inspiration in 1974. She teaches the process at conferences and graduate programs internationally. Deborah is creator of Soul Cards 1 and 2. She is the author of Drawing Out Your Soul and the Touch Drawing Facilitator Workbook. So please join me next week as Deborah Koff Chapin comes on the show. That will be March 7th. And all of you listening out there, be kind to yourself, be gentle. Take in the words of today to know that we do have the invisible allies that are here to help us. Take care, everyone. Much love. Thank you. Thank you.